curious minds. Hi. And here's your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Dennis Stone, and he is the owner of the American Stonehenge. Thanks for coming on again, Dennis. Oh, uh, thank you, Gary, for having me on today. Ah, my pleasure. So, I guess before we really jump into it, just for my listeners who may not be familiar uh, with you or the American Stonehenge, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how this how this property came into your family and and what it is and what we think it is or maybe the mysteries behind it. Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm having a little bit of difficulty understanding you, Gary, because there's like a severe echo. Um, I I think you were asking me if my family got when my family got involved with it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah, it sounds like you're cutting in and out a little bit. Hello. Hello. Yeah, it was a severe echo, Gary. I'm oh. not sure enough. I'm still hearing you. Oh, you're here, but I'm not really hearing you talk. Try again. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. All right. You sound good now. Okay, I can hear you now, and I could hear you before you actually started this show. But as soon as you started, it turned into like a very, very severe echo, and it was really, really hard to understand each word. I did hear something about American Stonehenge and family, but other than that, it was pretty hard to, yeah. So so the question was, um, for my listeners who haven't listened to our interviews from the past, can you give them an overview of American Stonehenge and how it came into uh, your family's possession? All right. Okay. And I can start now. It's good? Yep. I can hear you clear now. I hear you. Uh, Okay. Thank you. yeah, it started back in 1955. My dad, uh, Robert Stone, actually had been in the Coast Guard uh, in the early 50s. He had got out of the Coast Guard, buried my mom. And um, one of the things he used to like to do on Friday nights uh, was listen to a radio show just like we're doing right now. It was on uh, uh, one of the biggest stations in New England out of Boston, WBZ. And they were talking um, about uh, this unusual site. And it was only located about eight miles from my dad. And a family lived up in Derry, New Hampshire, and my dad had never heard of this. And so he was very fascinated by the talk, you know, all about these stone ruins, the mystery of them, who built them, how old they are, why were they there. And uh, it really intrigued him. And at that time, I 
didn't mention, but in 1953, just before that, he had started a 30-year career at AT&T Bell Laboratories. So he was an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next uh, week, he was going to have his hair cut up in Derry at a barber shop. And the uh, owner and the, hair, and the barber was a guy named Warren. And uh, my dad was waiting to have his hair cut. He picked up a magazine looking at it. It was a New Hampshire Profile magazine. And as he's flipping through the pages, uh, he saw pictures and a whole article about the same site that he had never heard of until that, you know, the Friday before. Uh, and that really was, co- you know, quite a coincidence, you know, just a few days later to see this whole thing. So he asked the barber if he could keep the uh, magazine. The barber said, well, how old is that magazine? He goes, well, it's 1952. It's been sitting here, I think, for three years. He goes, oh, let's go ahead and take it. Uh, that next weekend, they were at my aunt and uncle's house in that same town. And uh, about 10 people playing cards, you know, and sitting around the table on a Saturday night. Uh, my dad at one point took the magazine, passed it around to the friends and family. And nobody seemed to recognize what this place was at all, just like my dad. They had never heard of it until it got to my aunt and uncle, actually my mom's sister and her brother-in-law. And when they saw it, they looking at it, the pictures closely, and they went, oh, wait a minute. We used to go there in the 1930s, about 20 years before that which was kind of a surprise and kind of a neat thing. And my dad's next question was, well, do you think you can find the place? So that next Sunday, the four of them, I was about a year old at the time, so I stayed with Grandma, I guess, or Grandpa, and uh, they rode around North Salem. And at that time, the site was not open to the public whatsoever. It had never been. It was on private property on a hill, and it was unmarked. No, you know, there was no roads going up to it or anything like that that were marked or paved or anything. So as they drove around, they found an old dirt road that looked familiar to my aunt and uncle. And they stopped there and parked the car. And then they walked up through the woods, maybe about a half a mile. So they got up on top and then they saw the site and they realized they're at the right place. So this big chain link fence that surrounds what we call the main site. My dad climbed under it and disappeared for quite a while. The other three stayed outside this locked up chain fence and had barbed wire on top of it, too. So basically they trespassed. Mm-hmm. And my dad... When he come back out, he uh, was just kind of blown away by the site. And, my, and he mentioned to uh, the rest of them that the place was amazing. He'd never seen anything like that. Uh, he'd love to get involved with the research, try to figure out what the site is, and maybe own it, maybe open it as a museum, you know, during the conversation. And my mom said something about, you got rocks in your head. And uh, he did, I guess. Because <laughs> uh, it took him the next three years after he met the owner of the place to actually open it to the public, which he did in 1958 in the original it was on the summer solstice uh, which is kind of cool and at the yeah. time we didn't know we had astronomical alignments so he opened it up under the name um, the stone ruins of new hampshire and uh, that became the actual name of the business and during this first summer we were open uh, we had guided tours you know we had a snack bar my dad in the, those three years had put in a parking lot a driveway from the road to the parking lot um, he had to put in a well, a septic system, the business, the actual building, the visitor center, we used to call it the lodge. And uh, the lodge had like restrooms and it had, you know, a gift, gift shop and a, and a place you bought the tickets and had books about the place and stuff like that. Um, and then you'd go out the back of the building and they had mock trails. My dad had to cre- create a whole system of mock trails. And he also was kind of a little bit of an artist. So he hand painted signs on different features all around the tour that you took that would try to explain or give an idea what these different features might be. And on top of that, we would have uh, an actual guide, and we dressed them up in these uh, kind of green dicky uniforms, and they would give like a 45-minute to a one-hour tour. So uh, 
particularly during the summer months, in the spring and fall when the staff wasn't quite there, people, I think, did their own guided tour. Um, and so we opened uh, almost 65 years ago. And in 1959, we changed the name to Mystery Hill Caves. Um, and by 63, they realized the word caves was misleading people, thinking they were underground caverns and stone, you know, kind of caves. So we dropped the word cave in 1963. And almost 20 years later, 1982, we changed name once more to America's Stonehenge to better reflect the astronomical alignments at the site. Functionally, it's similar to Stonehenge in England, but the form of it's quite unique with the stone chambers it can go into. You have monoliths all around the site. And today we know through all the research that's been going on since 1965 on the astronomical alignments that there are about 57 alignments with the sun, the moon, and the stars rising and setting over different points. So... Um, Today, it's known as uh, America Stonehenge. And the name of the hill uh, never had an official name. Uh, so on the USGS topographical maps uh, for the last several decades, it's now known as Mystery Hill. Hmm. So that kind of part of that name stuck, and that still confuses some of the people coming going, we're looking for Mystery Hill. So this is Mystery Hill, but the name of the business is America Stonehenge. So it's been a family uh, affair, I guess, since 1955 on the second generation. Um, I worked for the airlines. My, like my dad was, you know, at AT&T, I worked for the airlines as a pilot. I ended up with American uh, for 27 years. And um, my son is a third generation. He's 33 now, and he's a, he works at Raytheon Corporation as an engineer. Um, you know, we have a granddaughter, and she's about 18 months old. And she's up there quite often. Her, mo her mom works there. My daughter-in-law works at the museum. So my granddaughter's up there with us about four or five days a week. So, so it is a family-run uh, business, and we're pretty close to it. That is awesome. So since you've had it, um, <clears throat> at, uh, I mean, obviously, I, you've had, I, know, I know that you've had archaeologists and other people come up here and study the site, try to date the site, and figure out who created it and why. Um, so, so how, how is that, um, where are we, where are you at with that? Like, like, what are some of the theories of who made it and why and how old it is? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. The archaeology actually began in 1937 by a gentleman from Hartford, Connecticut. Um, his name is William Goodwin. And when he saw it in 1936, he was shown the site by the gentleman named Malcolm Pearson, who my dad eventually bought the site from. Malcolm didn't own the site. He lived down in Massachusetts. His family owned another chamber down there called the Upton Chamber. And today that is part of the Upton, Massachusetts uh, park or uh, recreational right. park. It's a really cool structure. It looks like a gigantic stone eagle. Yeah, I've heard of, well, I've seen pictures of it. You've seen it on videos. Oh, 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 that's great. Oh, yeah, you know what I mean? It's pretty neat. You know, mm -hmm. it does kind of come with a a hill called Pratt Hill, and I believe there's a Pleiades alignment with a star cluster. Um, and um, It's interesting, and I think it's part of one of the sunrises. We revisited it last fall. It was full of water, you know, but mm -hmm. I hadn't been there since then. So Malcolm knew of several other sites, uh, Acton, Massachusetts, Hopkinton, that's where the Boston Marathon, you know, goes. Uh, they start there, actually, and there's a chamber there, too. So Malcolm was already familiar with some of these things because 100 years ago he his family bought that property, and the gentleman that sold the property go, hey, young man, there's a there's a cellar out back or something. When Malcolm saw it, it's not a cellar hole, you know, it was a chamber, you know, so that whet his appetite. And Mal Malcolm um, was willed the site eventually by Mr. Goodwin in 1950 when Mr. Goodwin died. Um, and that's a gentleman, again, my dad dealt with. But, yeah, the first archaeology began back in uh, 1937, and it, 
pretty much continued through the late 30s and in the 1940s. Uh, in 1950s, there was a group called the Early Sites Foundation, and that was formed in 1954 to actually do more formal excavation on the site. And that group, I think, dissolved in 1963, and my dad formed a new group called New England Antiquities Research Association, and the acronym is NERA. So New England Antiquities Research Association has been going since 64, and they worked on the site during the 60s and 70s. And so we have taken 12 carbon datings of the site starting in 67. Uh, one of the datings wasn't uh, enough material, so uh, the the company that did the testing was Geochrome Laboratories out of Cambridge, Mass. And we got the reports directly from them, from the owner, Dr. Kruger. And uh, he would send up uh, <clears throat> the reports, you know, the, of the results. And one of them was inadequate. But the other 11 tested, and the dates range from sometime about 1800 A.D., which we believe was a, a composite of charcoal from odd old and new mixed together. That's what it appeared to be. Mm-hmm. All the way back to a fire pit on the top of the hill near the North Stone. It doesn't date the stone features, but it appeared to be a fire pit that dated to 7,400 years old, or what we call the Middle wood, uh, middle Archaic time period. Um, so it shows possibly human activity on the hill going back 7,400 years. Um, but on the main site where that chain link fence is that my dad snuck under, that's about one acre of uh, the main, you know, most of the stone chambers, but not all. And that, Inside that area, we have several carbon datings, and the oldest one dated to about 4,000 years old, and that was 1971. And uh, that 1969, in that same area, they got a 3,000-year-old charcoal sample. And uh, so I think the site and the construction was around about 4,000 years ago. Um, in 1973, we began surveying the astronomical alignments. The first one we opened in 65, as I mentioned, but we hired, we needed a professional survey team to actually survey these accurately. And by 77, we had enough data to send to the Hobbit Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in 78, we got the results back, and we actually have that report with a person's name. I think it was a person named Rosenbaum. Uh, um, I saw the report recently, and they said if those stone markers out there were used for astronomical purposes. And the stone markers kind of look like arrowheads for the most mm-hmm. part, like great big arrowheads stood on their end. Um, they would work about 1800 BC, plus or minus a couple hundred years. Um, and they also mentioned you have 24 star alignments. So we knew we had one. So we had 23 star possible star alignments, too. Um, and those would not be worked on until Dr. Winkler from Penn State would come along in 1997. So it took 20 more years before we actually started working on those star alignments. And before his sudden death, he was at Penn State for 30 years. He used to drive all the way up in his Mercedes with his wife, and they'd do some research and go back. They did that for about five years, but in 2001, he, I think he died suddenly. So he lost a, a, you know, a nice resource, a very nice gentleman, too. But he was figuring out those other 23 alignments. We knew one of the 24 was true north. And today, the, the Polaris is actually over that star Polaris, part of the Little Dipper. Mm-hmm. But due to the Earth's precession um, 4,000 years ago, the star Thuban, or Alpha Draconis, in the constellation Draco the Dragon, or Serpent, was um, the actual pole star. So... Um, so the date of 1800 BC was very, very close to the 1971 charcoal dating. And the reason that they said 1800 BC plus or minus is because the Earth's tilt changes, too. There's an actual 
a cycle called the obligatory cycle. The Earth axis tilts up and down. Yeah. And um, so that's great because some of the uh, anything that's ancient today that's aligned with the heavens will be off just a little bit due to that tilt. And uh, so you could figure out when it would work. You could actually kind of date the site that way. So by astronomy and by the one of the carbon datings, uh, we actually put the site back to about around uh, that 2000 BC, 4000 years ago. Um, today we are have been doing um, optically stimulated luminescence dating, OSL they call it. Yes. I think it started in the 1980s, but they've only been using it in, I think, in the last dozen or so years. And the Upton Chamber was one of the chambers they selected back in 2011. It took five years to get the results. The universe, um, what was it, the USGS up Denver, Colorado, the U.S. Geological Service did the dating on it. A woman did the whole, I think she did most of it. We got her name, too. I forget her name offhand. But she did the work on that. And I believe they took several cores from the front of the Upton Chamber. Again, it's shaped like an igloo, so they did the entrance. And those dates go back before the time of Columbus. So it's not colonial or post-colonial. It seems like the structure was sitting there at least, at least around 1,400 years ago, before 1492. And we got those results in 2016. But our site was tested with four cores uh, in uh, September 11th, 2020. And we had about 25 people here uh, watching as well as participating and taking those four cores. The leader was Dr. Feathers from the University of Washington. He came all the way out. We had a couple of Brookhaven National Laboratory assistants that helped him. And then we had a we had a, 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 light, a geologist with a master's degree. We had the gentleman with the LIDAR. We've been doing ground uh, handheld LIDAR at our site. And he showed up that day, and he kind of he had already mapped that area they were taking the course from, which was good, but he wanted to be there. And then we had his friend from Waltham, Mass., with um, ground penetration radar, and she actually mapped one of the areas that they were taking a couple of the cores from. So we have that data, you know, where was it? in the future people will question, where did the, where did the uh, sediment or the rock come from that they were testing? And uh, we'll have both the surface and subsurface, you know, uh, images of that, which will be cool. And actually, she's going to she's got software now. She can actually uh, blend her ground penetration radar images with the LIDAR images. And this LIDAR is pretty amazing. It, can, uh, it has resolution down to about one centimeter. So it's very, very. Uh, you know, you, you, it's very um, high resolution, I guess you call it. It puts out 300,000 points per second. And he was telling me uh, the gentleman owns it uh, from NetGeo. He lives in Suffield, Connecticut. He was saying that uh, he just got the equipment two years ago. And drone equipment's four to 800 points per second. And airplane at that time was four to eight points. And we had some airborne LIDAR from 2011 taken by the U.S. government. You look at our walls, and the walls cover the 110 acres of walls. And we think these walls are ancient walls. And you try to look at them, and they're just blurs on the image. You know, we blew these images up, and they're pretty blurry. But his um, his LIDAR is pretty amazing. And um, we did 15 acres. It took him 600 hours to uh, do the data processing on it. And the software came from Montreal. The hardware is actually uh, out of Florida. And at that time, again, he had the latest cutting-edge technology. It was a $50,000 unit. And then he had to buy a few thousand-dollar new computer and all the software from Montreal. And he's a lamp he has a master's degree in landscape architecture. So he's doing this, uh, both of these now together, which works out beautifully. So we have the main site. We have the astronomical line. It's all LIDAR. And we have several thousand square feet of, you know, the ground map by uh, 
the ground penetration radar. So we're using some of the latest, you know, technology, um, which is it was new. Uh, April April thirtieth, Doctor Feathers is going to be giving out the results. He'll be doing it by Skype, mm-hmm. um, and he's going to do it uh, from the University of Washington. He's he did uh, twenty two sites from here to Virginia, um, and forty four cores. And the cores are not cheap. They're about a thousand dollars per core. Um, so Nira ended up uh, sponsoring this whole thing, basically, that group. And um, we sh- we're kind of excitedly waiting to see what he's going to be saying about the dates, not only at our site, but the other sites, again, all the way down to Virginia. And these are other stone sites. Uh, when my dad began in 1955, they knew of about 15 sites uh, in the Northeast. And William Goodwin wrote a book in 1946 called The Ruins of Great Ireland and New England. And in the book, near the beginning of the book, he actually lists the 15 sites. And I mentioned uh, Acton and Hoppington, Upton and our site. Now, Gunjiwampin, Connecticut, and a couple other sites he mentions. The number uh, kept increasing, uh, particularly when NERA was formed in 1964. And today they, they have about 800 different sites from Quebec all the way down to Virginia. And uh, a site can be one chamber in a town or it can be multiple chambers. Our site is... 110 acres with with uh, stone features all over it, and uh, there's a town in North Stonington, Connecticut. There's 8,000 of these features, and they look so much like what we have all over our hilltop. But these 8,000 features are spread out over 35,000 acres, um, and that was news to us in 2016 when a book called Ceremonial Stonework came out by a gentleman uh, named Mark Starr, and he and he writes for Yankee Magazine, and he's a freelance uh, photographer and he also writes books about New England fishing villages. In 2016, he'd lived in that town for 30 years, and he said, oh, everybody keeps telling me these, uh, all these structures, and they're in his own yard, too, were built by farmers. He goes, well, this is very hilly, rocky, swampy. It's treacherous to walk around, and uh, the soil's not really arable for growing crops. He goes, I, don't really, I never really felt these were farmers' constructions. They make no practical sense. It might be a wall only... 30 feet long, but it doesn't do anything. There might be another wall that just loops around in a circle. There's standing stones, there's cons, there's chambers, and all these things. And uh, he met some near people back uh, sometime before 2016, and they started, you know, talking to him and showing him other sites. It came uh, understanding that these might be prehistoric sites. These might be before the time of uh, colonial settlement, so they're not colonial or post-colonial farmers' constructions. These might be ancient you know, stonework. And so the book is, I think, very appropriately named. Again, it's called Ceremonial Stonework. And when I picked it up at this meeting in Groton, Connecticut in the fall of 2016, I thought it was a book about the whole Northeast, 8,000 different stone features, 25 categories of structures, you know, like 270 photographs. And uh, I was just like, wow. And then I looked and I kept looking at it and he was going to speak next, but there was a break, you know. So I'm looking at it closely. I'm like, wait a minute. This is one town in North Stonington. <clears throat> My dad had died in 2009, and I, he knew of sites all over the place, too, of course. But he and I had never he- heard him mention one thing about North Stonington, Connecticut. So this is, came as a great surprise. And as I'm flipping through it, I'm seeing all these features. And in 2016, I had retired from the airlines. And uh, after 35 years of flying for uh, a couple of the airlines, including American, <clears throat> and I started finding these walls that are shaped like what I thought was a snake. They kind of have like a head, mm-hmm. a body, and then a tail. And what the first one I found was about 27 feet long on the northwest 
part of the property. I was riding my ATV in the direction of where my dad used to live, actually. And we had since 1990 when he built a house on that part of, on that northwest part of, he bought his own land, but on the northwest part of the property. And he used to go by there on snowmobiles. I used to walk by there. And one day I just walked, was riding my ATV and the sunlight caught this wall about, oh, 50 or 60 feet away from me through the woods. And I'm looking at it going like, that, that really looks strange, you know. It looked like it had a head on it. And I had never noticed that before. So I walked over to it and it looked like a stone head. And I'm like, wow. And then the body tapered down to a flat stone and it was on the edge of bedrock. I'm like, it looked like that stone head had actually fallen off this, off this wall, you know, like it slipped down. And I'm like, this thing looks like a serpent, but it had no frame of reference. So I started talking to the family and some other people and taking pictures of it and everything else. And during the course of that summer of 2016, I found a couple others that we drove by and because the woods is the wood was so thick with so much brush, particularly when the uh, you know when the foliage comes out, it's so hard to see these walls. And I thought, but I did find a couple more. And in the fall, we're at that meeting, and I picked up the book, and as again I'm thumbing through it, all of a sudden I come out, I'm looking at walls that he calls serpent walls, and I'm like, that's what we have at our site. Whether they are or not, we don't know. We don't know what the original builders intended, but they look the same. And down in North Stonington, there's about 400 of them. And they range from 30 feet up to 300 feet. Uh, they can be linear. They can be rectilinear with like the head or tail bent 90 degrees. They can actually do great big S's, you know, like a great big letter S. And, and have a triangular stone head or a boulder head or a stacked head of stone. And some of them actually, they loop around. Like one of our biggest ones uh, I've ever seen is uh, what we call the... Um, watch house and the wall wraps around from there 2550 feet we actually gps'd it the fall of 2016 and it looks like it's biting its tail and i don't know if you're familiar the uh, oh, listeners yeah. it's like the gnostic symbol the Ouroboros, oh, yeah. or exactly. right Ouroboros, yeah it had that's the first time i heard of it 2016 because <clears throat> now i've looked it up a lot you know and i googled it and read about it in different books and stuff and actually even history channel had a picture of one of the things came up and is the ouroboros or the serpent biting its tail we think today we have three of those ouroboroses here so again the walls can be linear they can be rectilinear they can be curved they can loop around and the one at the watch house looks like it's nibbling on its tail sometimes the tail straight into the mouth sometimes it's on the side most most frequently it's with it's biting the tail straight on but ours it nibbles on the side, and I have seen some jewelry like that. So whether it's a true Ouroboros or not, it reminds me of the Ouroboros. Um, and the Great Serpent Mountain in Ohio, they say, is the you know, biggest serpent effigy or uh, what do you call it, a petroform in the world. It's 1,350 mm -hmm. feet long, and it's an amazing construction, all earth. But underneath it, I think it has stone foundation. It's built on the side of a, what they found not too many years ago was a meteorite crater. The ancient people put it right on the edge of that. And it is aligned with the solstices and the equinoxes. And uh, But ours is about twice as long as that, and ours is a stone wall. So after the North Stonington, you know, thing, uh, we started finding more. And today we have what we think 14 serpentine walls, and they're scattered all over the 110 acres. Um, and in some of these walls, there's beautiful lintel windows. I started finding these windows the same year in 2016. I was... When I was flying, I was away about 80 to 100 hours a week, so I had all that time away, and I'd work at the museum, you know, three days a week. When I got home, my wife would tell me about all the things that broke there and all the things that needed fixing and and, and regular maintenance work, so I was pretty, you know, I was pretty tied up. But when I got off the airlines, I started to have a little more free time to look at these things out there, and uh, 
we're finding that the serpent walls are not just our site or North Stonington. The Hudson Valley has them. There's about 500 different sites in the Hudson Valley. In fact, History Channel did a show on it uh, three years ago, and they showed some of the Hudson Valley sites. They've been on TV before. And my dad was well aware of Putnam County, Westchester. And um, uh, there, if you go out towards Monticello, Bethel, and Woodstock, New York, that, that region down there, there's about 500 sites. There are serpentine walls down there. They're in Pennsylvania. They're in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And some of the ones in the Berkshires have these beautiful lintel windows also. Um, and in Beaumont, they have them. And we're finding them in all the way out uh, to the West Coast. After that gentleman spoke about North Stonington for one, for one hour, and then he had questions, there was a break again. I tried to meet him. Uh, he was so surrounded with people. I met his wife, and she was wonderful. So he got to talk, and uh, we told him where we were from and what I had found, you know. Um, and I invited him up, and eventually they both made their way to our site. And he had already been there, I guess, years before that. So it was really nice to meet his wife and everything. I, but I got to meet him eventually. Um, there's a woman from Colorado, east of Denver. She started speaking at that same meeting for about an hour. She didn't fly out. Unfortunately, I wanted to meet her in person. But she had a two male colleagues on, and we were sitting here watching. And she's showing the same thing that, like, Mark, Mark Starr was showing in his presentation, cairns, what we call chambered cairns, these big piles of rock with a little chamber in them, uh, multiple cairns, they call cairn fields. And then he starts showing um, these, these walls are shaped like the letter D as in delta. And we have one on the south part of our uh, site, just south of the main site, and I knew that back in the 70s when I built the diorama, about a 30-acre diorama of the 110 acres when I was in college. And I said, gee, when I was putting the whole thing together, this looks like a D-shaped wall. It's kind of funny, just like, you know, it just kind of looks like a D. But she's, Mark Starr has them down, and he has two pictures in his book of two D-shaped walls. We don't know the purpose of the shape or what the purpose of the walls, but they kind of enclose an area. There's no place for a gate, like a wooden gate on them. They're just completely enclosed. She's showing the same kind of stone stone wall shape in Colorado. Then she starts showing her serpentine walls, and one of them looked exactly like one of our 14. It has a triangular head of stone, and the body goes behind it, of course. And my wife and I each elbowed each other at that moment when we saw that picture. I'm like, oh, my God, they got them out there, too. Uh, we have found that they're in Alabama. There's a 40-square-mile area down in Alabama, and a guy named Dr. Holstein from Jacksonville State University has been working on that site, I think, since the 1970s. I finally got a, a hold of him. By, and I started sending him messages, and he was very nice, and he invited us down twice in the last two years, but COVID, we didn't, we didn't get down there. He wants us to go to the university, he'll meet us there, and then he'll take us off to this 40-square-mile area. But what he's worked on are cairns. Again, some of them are pretty big, I guess. Would Some have standing stones, monoliths, and also what he calls rattlesnake walls. And we were quite surprised to see he's been working on that since the 1970s. He didn't know about the Northeast having these stone walls shaped like snakes. So now he does. And now we know that he has some similar stone work down there. We'll have to see him in person to see how they, how they, how, how they similar or dissimilar they are to ours. I've seen some photographs of them. They look really interesting. But, um, now out in Weed, California, right by Mount Shaster, there's a bunch of wall work, stone walls out in that area. And uh, I got about 110 pitches uh, from the vice president of the New England Antiquities Research Association about a year and a half or two years ago. Somebody had gone out there and photographed all these walls out there. And it's more open country there, not as much trees, so you can see the walls pretty well. 
And they have all these different shapes of walls, chevron patterns. And we have one of those at our site, too. could be just coincidental, but the serpentine walls, the thing that caught my attention, they have them there. And uh, and then we find out that Oregon and Washington State have stone walls that are shaped like serpents. So uh, it's kind of exciting to see these things across uh, North America. They actually go into Canada, and they go to the Rio Grande, because down south of that, uh, in Mexico, there's about 100,000 temple sites in Quetzalcoatl and Cucucan. Some of the bearded serpents are big down there, and, and you get into South America, too, you know. But um, so these are new finds, you know. We've, we found 14 windows at our site, uh, 14 serpents. The windows are interesting. They shouldn't really be in the walls. You know, there's no real purpose unless they were building them with the, uh, the rabbits run through them or something. But we found little stone shutters next to some of these. And the shutter can actually be used to actually block the opening. Uh, we also found one of them had horizontal stone shutters right inside of it. And we didn't, we don't like to move anything at our site because we consider everything archaeological and we try not to disturb it. But we actually took our fingers and just the horizontals were stacked up inside of it and they are loose. They're not like supporting the lintel stone or at all. They could be removed. We found another one had little stone round cobbles, if you will, inside the opening. And, and I just, we took our finger, just touched them and they are loose in there again. They're not really, they're not structural. They don't support the lintel stone or anything. So, um, you know, and it was quite a surprise to find these. Uh, I think a lot of the people like my dad and others that have passed away, if they could see these serpent walls in the windows, uh, I think they'd be blown away by these things because they're just not what farmers were doing. You know, farmers built Mark, Mark Starr puts in his book uh, some pictures of New England walls. There are about 240,000 miles of stone walls built during the historic period, starting probably in the 1700s. In the early days, they used wooden fences like at Plymouth Plantation and other early settlements. But they started, they might have built a few stone walls, but the ones in Plymouth are wood, wooden fences. And then later, they started clearing the fields. They wanted to get rid of the rocks. They wanted to make a boundary, maybe a stock fence, keep animals in or out of an area. And they're usually fairly straight with some exceptions, but we, I grew up with stone walls up in Derry all around because it was a cow farm, and the cows were still there when I was, a, you know, back in the 50s. And I remember going up to the fence, seeing the cows, you know, behind my house. Um, eventually, they, they went away, and the farms were abandoned kind of for that purpose. But stone walls, we have the most stone walls of anywhere on the earth. And again, most of them are just historical farmer's walls, but these walls have a whole different flavor to them. Um, and we see the pictures of them and everything, you know, the, you know, they do look like a snake, you know, and the inspiration might again be Draco, the constellation. That's something that's a possibility. They might've been inspired by the local snakes too, the snake population. But some people feel that in the Northern hemisphere, at least you'd see Draco and 4,000 years ago it stopped. Uben was a pole star and as the course of the, during the course of the night, as the earth turned, Draco kind of spin a little bit right around that pole star. Um, Egyptians looked at that as the gateway to heaven, and it was a, the eternal star, if you will. And the stars that go around it called circumpolar, and then there's circumpolar grazing stars, too. And Dr. Winkler did find that our biggest monolith, which is 14 feet long, it's fallen, and it, when it fell, it must have busted in three pieces, it has a slanted top to it, sort of like some of this you see over in Scotland. Like uh, some of the stones, of the Ring of Brogar or Stennis, uh, out in the, I think they're in the Hebrides. I've been to Scotland, but I haven't been to the islands there. But uh, they look just like those stones. The top of them have a kind of a notch to them. 
But during the course of the evening, about 4,000 years ago, for 100 years, due to precession, it wouldn't last very long. But that star would come down, and the star was called Izar. It's, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it. I call it booties, but it's something like that. But it comes down and actually comes down. It goes right over the top of the stone, tangent to it, and then it would be extinguished by the atmosphere. And um, so that would work up for about 100 years, at about 4,000 years ago. So that was kind of another way of putting the age of the site back to that time period. Wow. Um, and then Dr. Winkler, of course, worked on the other 22 stars after that, uh, Cirrus, Debron, and other stars that are aligned with, and he's, he had a 38-page paper that he uh, put together between 1997 and 1999, and we have those copies today. And then in, in 2000, he began going out looking at the walls, more of the outside walls with my dad, he would get on his ATV and they'd drive out there. But they never noticed the serpentine shape, you know. And part of the reason is your eyes aren't trained for it. The other thing is there's so much vegetation out there that all you saw are little pieces of the wall. You couldn't see the whole wall shape, you know. Um, and that's one advantage with LiDAR. The LiDAR, you can just push the button on the computer and you can get rid of all the vegetation. And you're just looking at the rock work, which is so cool. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I was still finding things for using latest technologies and again on um, April 30th uh, Dr. Feathers will be speaking from the university out there <clears throat> about these uh, 22 different sites and and we'll be kind of excited to see what results. We got some preliminary results because they, they stick these little dosimeters in the ground where the cores come out or where the rock samples taken from and they leave the little device in there to measure radioactivity I believe for one year. Mm -hmm. He's got to explain that better to us but on 9-11 last year, they came up and they collected the dosimeters from our site and I guess across the northeast of Virginia, and that's used to calibrate the dating. So we got some rough ideas, and they were before the time of Columbus and before co uh, colonial settlement. So they weren't like, oh, you know, uh, it was in the 1800s that, you know, somebody could have built it during that time period. The samples showed that um, those two samples that tested showed that, uh, you know, the wall work was there before colonial, you know, before 1620 and before 1492. So, again, kind of verifying that it's a prehistoric site, not something built, you know, just a few hundred years ago. Wow. So, so that means if it's prehistoric, that, that this is something before, um, say, like Templars or anybody like that came here. So are we talking possibly like, like Toltec? Well, that's interesting. Yeah, we. I mean, there there are uh, interesting things about what came out of the out of the south, you know, out of Mexico and even further south into North America. Um, we don't have enough data yet to really identify uh, precisely who these people are. We knew now the Mayans had a cultural influence. We were just uh, two months ago down at uh, Florida. We went to the Crystal River Mounds again. We had been there in '89. We went back. They're on the west coast and. They're pretty amazing. Um, when I, we were there in 89, and we went there about 10 years ago, and again, we weren't there two months ago. Um, and when we talked to the people there, and I got a couple of books I bought at their gift shop. It's a state park. You know, it's about, uh, it's, it's, if you were in Orlando, I guess it would be about, two, about a two-hour drive to mm -hmm. there. They say the Mayans had a cultural influence there. And when we went 89, we, I first learned that, and I'm like, wow, that's pretty interesting. I've never heard that in school. But the Mayans may have had an influence in Florida, and in particularly at the Crystal River Mound. Um, 
and they're shell mounds, and they're pretty amazing. I mean, there are pyramids, and there's you know there's conical ones for burial, and the flat top, ridge top. You can climb up one of them; it goes up uh, over 50 feet high. It's partly there today because during the 1950s they built a trailer park for people to live, and they actually filled in part of a lagoon, I guess, with part of it. So I think it's two thirds there, and it's still gigantic, you know. And it's what a beautiful view you can see from up above there, and you can see into the uh, into the they have like a bay there, and you can see like there's manatees in there and stuff, and it goes out to of course to the Gulf Coast. We went to Mexico after that. I've been to Mexico several times, but the, we went to Mexico the next time after that. And I talked to one of the guides at, we were in the Yucatan and, uh, at Coba, a site called Coba. And I was talking to the guide there about our site a little bit, you know, some of the New England sites. And I mentioned the Crystal River Mounds. I said, Do you, I, are you aware that they say that the Mayans had a cultural influence into Florida? And he just casually nodded. He goes, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it was like, it wasn't any big deal for him, you know. He had heard that, you know. Uh, we also visited the uh, the biggest uh, shell mound, they say, in the United States. That was on the East Coast, just north of uh, Cape Kennedy. And we had been there before, uh, back uh, maybe 15 years ago. We tried two years ago, just before COVID set in, in January of 2020, and they had closed it up. But it's all made out of shell. And uh, again, you know, you wonder where the influence came from. Maybe it just happened there, you know. It was their own thing. But knowing on the West Coast that the Mayans had made it up and they were trading goods, they may have intermarried with some of the Native Americans. So there was an influence there. I found out the Mayans actually went into the four corners out West. And there's an influence going out to, you know, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico. And we've been out there. We've been to Chaco Canyon. We were out there uh, two and a half years ago out in that area going around Hoban Weep and some beautiful sites. And there is that uh, you do see a little bit about information about the Mayan influence going way up there, too. They say the Aztec influence made it into the Ohio Valley, you know, and Ohio Valley starting there, there were about a million mounds built by ancient man starting in the Ohio Valley, going towards the Rio Grande, again, going down to Florida and out to Iowa. And these, these mounds are, some of them are pyramidal mounds, some of the biggest in the world made out of earth and rock, like out in Cahokia, uh, Illinois, is right across from St. Louis. And, um, they, uh, and these mounds can be also shaped like, like I mentioned, the Great Serpent Mound. There's other shaped like birds and like bears. And they're in Iowa. They're in Louisiana. They're all over the country. And then there's others that are geometrically shaped, like the ones out in near Columbus, just east of Columbus. is Newark, Ohio. It's one of the biggest earthworks in the world. And it's a lunar alignment. So uh, in 2025, we'll be watching the moon at our site, part of the lunar cycle. It's called the Lunar Major uh, Standstill. Moonrise and Moonset, and we'll be here watching it. They'll be at Stonehenge. I believe uh, there's 50,000 megalithic sites in Europe, and some of these are lunar observatories like Karnak in France is another place I believe it has. I've been to that site. Mm-hmm. So back in Newark, though, that site is an amazing site. I used to fly over it all the time going into Columbus. It, there's a golf course built over it, but they did preserve most of it, which is good. Um, and other sites like Chillicothe are geometrically shaped, too. Uh, they have round shapes. There's... Uh, uh, let's see, six, I think, uh, eight sided, I think. And there's rectangular shapes too, built into the ground. So there's pyramidal shapes and the pyramids come in different categories. And then there's, uh, shapes like animals or even like people in some cases. And then there's the, uh, the, uh, you know, geometrically shaped mounds. And there are about a million of them in the United States. And I grew up, I didn't know about one of them, you know. Um, and to know we have the most pyramids of anywhere in the world and not have that in the school system is kind of sad. Uh, then our sites are about 800 from here to Virginia, and some of these features going all the way out to California, you know. Um, 
The other thing we have in this country, too, if you heard of the NASCAR lines down in Peru, mm -hmm. all those there. different. Have you been there? No, no, I'm going with um, Jared. I haven't. I have not been there, but uh, I should. That's one of my kick uh, on my on my bucket list. Uh, I think Chile even has. Uh, I think Chile has. Is it Chile? I, get, I think it's Chile has ninety thousand square miles of those same kind of we call geoglyphs. They're they're artwork in the desert. Mm -hmm. But United States has that too. And uh, again, it's something we don't teach in our schools and on the West Coast. They're in Southern California, uh, near a town called Blythe. And they're called the Blythe Indialagos. There are about 200 of them there, right on the Colorado River. Um, and I learned about that. And I was pretty blown away by that, that we have these, this beautiful artwork in the desert again and never heard a thing about it. But if you head towards Kansas, they continue right into Kansas. And some of the ones in Kansas, as well as in Blythe, are shaped like serpent. So we go back to that serpent thing again. It seemed to be ancient people seem to be quite, I guess, um, uh, you know, Interested in serpents, um, the serpent worship. Native Americans actually had out west the snake dance too. You know the whole mm -hmm. ceremony with snakes. So it seems to be something that occurred all across the North American continent. It's also so, in like um, Chichen Itza, right? They have the, the pyramid there yeah. with the um, the Dornosaurus, the snake shadows shows up on the side of the pyramid. Absolutely, yeah. That we've been to that site in the eighties. The the El Calisto, the castle. Yeah, they. On the uh, equinox, the uh, it's Kukulkan that goes down the staircase, you know. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it looks like a serpent kind of going down a staircase. Pretty imagine building that big thing and making a mistake so it doesn't work. It's like, hey guys, we got to tear this thing down and build it again. <laughs> well, the watch house on the equinox uh, three years ago, a friend from Texas was up, and she's been in archaeology, she's dug in Mexico, and she's into doing some old world travels with the Templars over overseas and everything. She's all over the place, but. Uh, pretty cool stuff, but she had her uh, phone app. It was called Sunseeker. She put on it, and she's in the back of the, uh, the 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 watch house. Actually, has a chamber in it. It's pretty cool. On the back wall, there's a white rock. It's quartzite. It always, you know, it's people have always seen it. I said, wonder what that is. You know, what it will do. It's everything else is gray. It's, everything's granite up there, but this is kind of quartzite. Very, very, it stands right out in it, like a. You know, maybe about a foot across or so, right in the back wall. It's very, very obvious. It looks like it's intentional. So uh, the forest up there was so thick we could never watch a sunrise until uh, 2020, a year after she came. But when she was here in the, about three years ago, she goes, I think what you'll see, uh, you're going to see the sunlight illuminate the stone inside this chamber, you know. Uh, in the morning, maybe around 8 o'clock, the sun should rise and the sunlight should illuminate it. Well, we, in 2018, hired a we interviewed some licensed foresters. We wanted to thin out the entire hilltop, open up all the alignments more than they are, and open up the lunar alignments, which had never been open. And again, we started clearing out the trees in 1965, so we hadn't finished the project. So we hired a gentleman. Uh, he went to the University of New Hampshire for his degree, and uh, he was great to work with. He knew he had to protect all the walls and all the features on the hilltop and work around them and um, also not impact the ground. So we hired a uh, a company that came up with their equipment during the winter months uh, in the fall, uh, December of 2019 through February of 2020. And then they pulled all the equipment out after doing part of the project. And then they came back the following year during the winter months and they finished it. So a little over a year ago, we had the, the project done. But in 2020, they had already opened up the area in front where the sun rises in front of that chamber. They had to clear out quite a few trees to our neighbor's property, mm -hmm. a couple hundred feet, and it worked. We're there in 2020, and we, on the morning, about 8 o'clock in the morning, we got a picture. 
But not only did the sun illuminate that white stone going into that chamber, it actually framed it. The shadow created by the entrance, the shadow and light created by the rocks in the entrance, actually caused the shadow and light to actually be the same shape as a stone. And now we have photographs, so that's pretty outstanding. We uh, filmed it over the next 30 minutes just to see what happened. And we did put out a YouTube video on that. And it's a 30-second. We cut it down to 30 seconds. And what it shows is the stone is illuminated beautifully, again, by the shadow and light effect. And then over 30 minutes, it looks like the whole form changes to looks like a hand with just the index finger pointing out at the corner of the lower right corner of the stone. It looks like a hand pointing back. And what we think it is is symbolic of like the sun is the male, the sun's rays are coming into the chamber, fertilizing the egg. And then at the end of it, you have like a hand pointing back at the fertilized egg. If you watch the YouTube video, you can see it. It's very, very visual. Um, and we think it's intentional. Um, it's the same day as at Chicken Itza that Cuckoo uh, Con will be come down the staircase. So it's an equinox with a shadow and the light of the serpent coming down the, the 91 stair steps at the Chicken Itza. But um, in the winter solstice over at Newgrange in Ireland, which I've been to that great big tomb, it's 300 feet across, and the we've been inside of it. It's about a 65-foot chamber. On the winter solstice, not the equinox, the sunlight will go through a window box. It's like a, one of our windows we have in our walls kind of shape. The sunlight will go into that. It will go 65 feet and hit the back of the cruciform shape of the chamber. Um, and there are a couple of caves in Colorado called the Pathfinder and Crack Creek Cave. They're not well known, um, but they're natural caves. And in the back wall, there's carvings of different types of petroglyphs, different types of carvings. On the equinox, the sunlight actually goes in and it illuminates a serpent carving on the equinox, spring and fall, on the sunrise. Kind of like our site, because, again, the watch house is the head of a 2,550-foot serpent in the Ouroboros, we believe. Mojave Cave out in uh, Mojave North Cave, they call it, in California, is another cave. And it has artwork, including serpent carvings. And, again, I believe on the equinox, it illuminates that. And then at Chaco Canyon, the sun dagger works for the summer solstice. It comes right down the middle of that spiral. There's like nine spiral. They're pretty cool. The nine spirals are actually half the lunar uh, cycle we mentioned earlier, the 18.61 lunar cycle. Those nine spirals, I think, shows halfway through that cycle. Because every nine years, you have a lunar minor, a lunar major. So the next one coming up is 2025 is the lunar majors. And then 2035, nine years later, we'll have the lunar minors. So that Chaco Canyon is really spectacular. On the winter solstice, I believe there's two daggers coming down on, on the outside of that spiral. But on the equinox, uh, it does something on the spiral, but there's also a carving of a serpent. And what it does on the equinox, it splits by a shadow and light, splits the sp serpent in, in half. So there seems to be something going on with the equinox, like you brought up with Chicken Itza, and a serpent, and at our site too. And uh, since it's so new to us, we're not sh we have to do more, you know, more study and more thinking about what this all means, you know. So that watch house is a multifunctional uh, unit. It has that illumination effect. It's a head of a 2,550-foot serpent or Boris. And it also, the stone itself is on the lunar minor alignment that the moon should rise over that in 2025. We're going to watch it for the first time because the trees are out of the way. And it's also a cross-quarter day. Um, you have your quarter days, which are spring, summer, fall, and winter. The cross-quarter days are the days in between. And the Celts celebrated it, but Native Americans did too. 
And uh, the Watch House Boulder is also a uh, February 1st. The Celts called it Imblock. It's around Groundhog's Day and Candlemas. And behind that boulder, the wall undulates. It looks like the back of a serpent. It goes up and down, up and down. And the LIDAR imaging, you can see it beautifully. But I've taken regular photographs of it now without the trees. And it's pretty spectacular. The first hump is November 1st. It's a cross-quarter day, too. It's uh, today All Saints Day, the day after Halloween. Hmm. So um, that, that chamber does have a lot of interesting things. In 1959, they found a bone pendant and a stone pendant inside of it during an excavation, which raised, you know, questions as to what, what were they doing in there, you know? Were they left behind by somebody as an offering? Uh, you know, is it a burial? We don't think it's a burial, though. We don't have any evidence of that because it, it was like Newgrange. It was a structure that um, was used astronomically. You know, you had to have the entrance open to watch this illumination and everything. So um, so t today, again, we have about 57 alignments, and one of them is that illumination inside the watch house. So that's that's something we only really saw two years ago. That's probably one of the latest finds. So do you think that the South American cultures made it all the way to New Hampshire? That's a great question. I think we're going to need more, you know, going to need more um, evidence um, uh, across the landscape to show that. Uh, I know on one show that Scott Walters showed that the Mayans might have made it into Georgia, you know. Uh, he showed that episode did not show them in Florida, which I thought would be a great piece of evidence, too, you know. Uh, at Crystal River Mounds. Um, so we'll have to see. Uh, when you see those geoglyphs out in California looking like the ones down in Peru, and also, uh, it might be Argentina, I think it has the 90,000 square mile. I couldn't believe it was that many. I thought it was acres, but it's, I watched the show twice, and they say 90,000 square miles of uh, geoglyphs, ancient you know, artwork across the landscape. You know, and, we, and again, we have that in the United States. So that seems to be... I think you yeah, are talking about possible diffusion, you know, between South America and North America because of that. And then the mines coming out of Mexico, you know, up into the Four Corners and also into Florida. Uh, and I mean, it's possible that, you know, they, some of these people made it all the way up here. I know there's somebody that's been talking about, somebody wrote a book and they mentioned something about them coming into the Northeast. And I can't remember the title of the book or the author, but that was out a few years ago. There's the possibility of old world visitors, too, before the Vikings coming over. Uh, there's inscriptions found at our site and actually from Maine on Manana Island, Maine, all the way to Brazil. The one in Brazil was found by slaves in 1862 that appear to be Phoenician writings, you know, and they go all the way out towards the West Coast. And so we either have a lot of misidentifications, hoaxes, frauds or fakes, or these are actual old world visitors coming over and leaving their mark behind. But at our site, according to Barry Fell, in 1975, he first visited the site. And his book, America BC, came out in 76 on our bicentennial year. Um, by then, he had already, he had been working on this for years before that, you know, even before we knew him and before 1975. But the book talks about, at our site, Libyan uh, mockings, Phoenician, and Celtic. And he said these people, these groups, these cultures were actually, in, had, were also in Spain. It was like a melting pot. So he identifies our Phoenician writing as Iberian Punic and, you know, Celtic Olgum, but uh, from Iberia because of the style of it, I guess. You could differentiate from different parts of where this Olgum was, whether it's in Ireland or part of Scotland or down in, down in Spain. Um, in the Libyan, because you're out of Libya, but they were also up in Spain, too. 
And uh, he identifies that as a jumping off spot to the new world. And he raised a lot of ruckus, a lot, raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of controversy, you know, about old world visitors coming across the Atlantic before not only Columbus, but before the Vikings by, you know, a couple thousand years, you know. And uh, so that's still unsettled, you know, where there are old world visitors coming in. Um, I'm reading Farley Moore's book from 19... 19- uh, 99, and uh, he's a Canadian writer. I think he might have passed away. A uh, very famous writer. He he wrote West Viking in 1965 after putting 10 years of research into the book about the Vikings coming into into Canada, into Newfoundland. You know, in 1960 they proved the Vikings made it to uh, Canada at Lonzo Meadow. And more recently, with satellite imaging, uh, the Worldview 3 satellite. Sarah Pakat, she's a space archaeologist. She found more pyramids in Egypt. I think 19. She found more with a satellite she was able to see Guatemala. I can't believe it. Something like 60,000 more Mayan temples that were hiding in the jungle. But her satellite could see that. And then it, up in Newfoundland, about 400 miles southwest of uh, Monzo Meadow, which again was uh, discovered in 1960, uh, they recently found another Viking settlement. <clears throat> uh, it, I think it's called Point Rosie. And that made it onto a two-hour, I think it was a PBS special all about that. Um, it was really interesting, but she, she's finding things with satellites, you know, uh, and then they go in there with LIDAR, either airborne drone or handheld. And then you can start to really see some of the things. Um, but the Vikings, uh, according to Farley Moore, were actually not the first in Iceland nor Greenland nor the Baffin Islands coming from the east. There were people before them he called the Albans and that's all Albania. All, all Alban was Alba was the name of Britain, I guess, before it was called Britain. Mm-hmm. And he calls them the Albans. And he said they were escaping, you know, uh, initially Rome Rome was coming. You know, the Celts came in, the Romans came in, and these guys were getting pushed around. And then eventually uh, the Northmen came in, the Vikings, you know, and they were raiding, pillaging, burning, and taking many slaves. These, a lot of these people ended up going up to Iceland, and they knew it was there. They went through the pharaohs and up to Iceland. And he describes how they would know these, these islands existed by, the, uh, by watching birds migrate. Um, that kind of thing, uh, you know, and also these guys would get out and they were fishing and everything. They had hide covered boats and they also had wood boats and they made it to Iceland and they're putting that back to about 600 AD so far and well before the Vikings got in there. And then when the Vikings got into Iceland, they went further into Greenland and they ended up going into, um, into, uh, into Canada, you know, and this is going back before the Viking time and all these stone beacons are up in Newfoundland, up in Labrador. These beacons are cairns, and they're various sizes, and he said they're like lighthouses. And when people would come in there from the old world, they'd see these on the shore. Some of them are set up high on, like, uh, cliffs and everything, and they're like one, two, or three of these lighthouses together. They're actually cairns of various heights. They could tell where they were, like uh, like a mariner would do today with a lighthouse, you know, mm-hmm. identify the spot and use it for navigation. And these are all over in Canada. You know, you don't hear about these things either, and these things have always been there, the, the Inuit, the Eskimo. They, these things were built by other people, you know, and they try and sometimes describe them as lighter colored, you know, whatever, uh, you know, skin tone or whatever. But they say we didn't build these. These are always here, you know, and there's actually foundations up there, stone foundations from something that were not historic either. So the people come across the Atlantic is one of the questions, too. Um, and uh, we're still investigating that. Interesting. Um, so. Before we wrap this up, um, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and to get information on the American Stonehenge? 
to take the tour and and also check out this um, event that's coming up in April for dating. Right. Uh, well, our website is StonehengeUSA.com. And when they go into that website, uh, there's actually uh, – uh, we'll put up – we'll post different things like a drumming circle. We'll put up the, uh, the dates when Dr. Feathers puts the dates out. We'll put that out. And any other events or anything, anything interesting we'll put on there like the summer solstice, you know, coming up and stuff. So the website, StonehengeUSA.com. And when you go in there, you can actually uh, look at a uh, 12-minute video that we have in our theater. So a lot of people like to watch that before they come up. It's 12 minutes. It's an orientation film. We used to only show it in our theater, but now it's online. And also in that same area of the website, you can find our free app download. And you download the app on your phone, and you can do a complete virtual tour of the, what you would do at our site. And it takes about an hour to walk around everything. You can actually do in your lazy boy at home, whether you live anywhere in the world, you can actually do a complete free video tour of our site. When you come up, if you use your smartphone, you can walk around with it and it will talk to you. It has pictures of text of each feature as you walk along. We also give you a four-page tour guide map in case the battery dies on your phone. That's the way we've been doing it anyway with the tour guide map since we pretty much opened up, you know. And because and originally we used to have guide guided tours here, but we don't do that now. Expect, uh, pretty much don't do guided tours. We were doing some VIP tours until COVID hit, and that was just a special prearranged, you know, thing. Um, and they can actually buy tickets online, too, and they're a little bit cheaper than when you come into our visitor center. And the ticket's good forever, you know. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter when you come. There's no restrictions to it. Uh, we do Instagram, and we have Facebook. We're on Facebook. We put that same information on Facebook, you know, special activities or, like, New new dating coming out with Dr. Feathers, that kind of thing. So uh, StonehengeUSA.com, there's a telephone number there. Uh, the email, you can actually email us questions too. We'd be happy to try to answer your questions and help you out. And we're open every day of the year. Uh, in the wintertime, we reduce the hours a little bit. And uh, this year, for the first time, we close Mondays. We're just trying to cut back a little bit because we're working seven days a week there. And Mondays are always kind of a slow day. I think most museums are closed. A lot of restaurants are so. We tried that for two months. I think it was December into January, I think it was. Uh, sometime in uh, February, we went back to seven days a week. So now we're open from nine till five, and we're open uh, seven days a week. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think this, the website's probably the best to go to. Awesome. <clears throat> so what I'll do is I'll put a link to my to your website and notes of this episode so my listeners can go in there and look at the pictures, download the app, take the tour, and if they're interested, I hope they go up there to see it themselves. I know that me and Jared are hopefully coming up there soon, too. You know, we've been all sort of held up because of COVID, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy all these days. But we even stayed open during COVID. For a while, we just had the uh, people just come to the front of the building and, you know, and then they'd walk around, do their tour. Now everything's opened back up again, but we'll see how everything goes. And uh, we'd love to have you come up, Jared, come up uh, and see the site. And uh, I think Jared's been up a, a year or two ago. But uh, we'll love to have you up here. Yeah, come up and see it. And you even have chambers in New Jersey. Uh, I think you're in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was called uh, Weird New Jersey Book that came out years ago, and they had some of the structures in there, you know, in your area. So oh, yeah, there's they're, tons they're of weird stuff here. <laughs> it's all over the place. Because it's like 110 acres compressed, but these sites are all over the landscape, I guess. So it's not just some, you know, uh, one time up thing, you know. Uh, this yeah. culture may have been here for years, you know. But it was wonderful talking. Thank you, you so much. You too. Thank you. And um, have a great day. And just hang on for one second while I play the outro. Okay. 
message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, 